Good morning, everyone. Uh, We are reading from Luke today, uh, chapter 16 and the first 15 verses of that. So Luke 16, if you want to find it in your Bibles or on your phone or whatever you have in front of you. All right. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was was, was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager asked himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debitors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Nine hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. So that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Thanks, Annika. Now, it's going to be helpful to have that passage open in front of you. People plan for the future. They look to see where blessing might be found and they plan on how they are going to get there. It used to be that we'd gaze into crystal balls, consult you know, clairvoyants and soothsayers. Uh, now there's a whole lot of other people that we use to plan for our future. We call them financial planners, life coaches, personal trainers. Uh, we want to future-proof our lives. Yes, that's a word that you hear a bit about these days, future-proofing your life. Now, Jesus this morning, he's telling us how to future-proof our life. That is particularly, I think, relevant in our time of COVID, uh, where the best laid plans of mice and men and women and others uh, uh, have been thrown to the wind. How is it that Jesus tells us to future-proof our life? Now, the words that uh, Annika read for us, probably one of Jesus's most difficult parables, if not number one, very close to the top of the list. Uh, We're going to unpack it this morning with three points. Number one, not unsurprisingly, called a confusing story. 
number two, a confronting conclusion. And number three, the heart of the matter. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be helpful for you. Okay, let's dive in. A confusing story. Before we actually confront the details of this story, we need to remind ourselves where we're at. In the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, one of the most important uh, questions to ask yourselves is, what is the context for what it is that we are reading? As Rick reminded us this morning, as he took a verse totally out of context, uh, at his own admission, not mine, uh, we need to actually look and to see where this teaching comes in and what it actually means within its context. Because generally, once you understand the context, and I think you'll see this this morning, the details kind of become a bit more obvious. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, it's there in 16 verse 1, uh, in the face of the religious leaders. They are there in 16 verse 14. The Pharisees are there listening in, watching in. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the face of the Pharisees. But these groups of people, they haven't just turned up at the start of chapter 16. They're still there from the start of chapter 15 that we looked at over the last two weeks. And if you remember, Jesus told the parable of the lost, you know, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. He told that to the religious leaders with his disciples watching him. Now he flips it around and he speaks to the disciples, but the religious leaders are still watching. But the context to which Jesus is speaking, is still very relevant. So why did Jesus teach the parable of the lost? Well, look at it there in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus is addressing this issue. And I believe that as we get to chapter 16 and this next parable, he's still addressing this issue. We need to hold that in context. Okay, let's dive in. Annika read for us the parable. You'll see it's quite simple. The characters get introduced right up front. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possession. So we have a rich guy. Okay, if you read through, you can work out some details about this guy. He's not just rich, he's seriously rich. We'll explain this a little bit later on. He's not probably a moneylender. He probably is a landowner who leases his land to tenant farmers. This is why when the debts are owed... They're owed in terms of the produce of the land rather than a cash value. Okay? So this is a rich guy who owns extraordinary amounts of land, who leases it out to tenant farmers, and he has a manager. And this guy, his job would have been to manage the business of the estate, and part of that was to conduct the lease agreements with the tenant farmers. He acted in the master's name with his authority, but he was a steward of the master's wealth. 
So he had full use of the wealth. He had the authority to use the wealth as he saw fit, but he was accountable for it. It wasn't his. So we've got the rich man, we've got the, we've got the manager, and we've also got the debtors. And these, as I said, I think are tenant farmers who had an agreed amount that they owed to the master. And then all of a sudden, there's a crisis. The rich man, whose manager was accused of wasting his possession, so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, Literally, what this probably is saying is not explain yourself, but hand over the books. You can no longer act in my name with my authority. You need to hand over the accounts. And what does the man say? He's accused by his master. What does he say? Well, nothing. Why? Probably because he knows he's guilty as charged. He knows that there's no point appealing. I've lost my job. I've got to start moving on to the next options. And so the manager says to himself in verse 3, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. This is the crisis that the man faces. The other options are not appealing. He's losing his job. What does he do? Well, he moves on fairly quickly. Verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, he's probably not looking for just a bed for the night at this point. He's possibly, and probably I would suggest, looking for another job. He's looking for someone else to take him in to let him do what he's been doing to manage the property. And so he calls in the tenants. He calls in the farmers and says, what do you owe my master? One of them owes wheat, one of them owes oil. Let's read in verses 5 to 7. He asked the first, how much do you owe? 900 gallons of oil. Okay, how good are we with gallons? This is an American translation. Uh, Can I say the original is not very much helpful? It's in baths. Uh, Okay, that was the Hebrew way of measuring things. Let's put it into Aussie. Okay, we are talking about three and a half thousand litres of olive oil. Uh, That's that's enough, don't you think? Okay, he, he owns a huge amount. Take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. He's just halved the debt. He's taken out... 1,750, uh, is that right? Yeah, 1,750 litres of oil, take it away. Then he asks the second, how much do you owe? Well, a 1,000 bushels of wheat. How much is this? Anyone familiar with a bushel? You've got a bushel measure at home? Okay, let me tell you, we're not talking about kilos. We're talking about tonnage. And we're talking about... 27 tons of wheat. Okay, so this man owes a lot of wheat. That's, his, that's, that's the rent on the estate. This is why we say that the rich man, he's not just a rich man, he's a really rich man. These volumes are really big. Okay? And the commentators, if you read up in the books, they'll tell you that the 450 
gallons of oil or the 200 bushels, they had roughly the same kind of money value. When you translated it into the the coinage of the day, the denarii, uh, it was about 500 denarii, okay? And now a worker, a labourer would work one day for one denarii. So we're talking about 500 days labour. So I did some maths uh, and went to the uh, Australian, um, the minimum wage for Australia, thinking this, this worker, this is the hired worker, it'd probably line up with the Australian minimum wage. This is the equivalent of about $75,000. Okay? Each debt. Each reduction. So the manager has taken it upon himself to reduce his master's income by $150,000. Now just ask yourself how you'd feel about that, okay? Your manager comes in, you find that out, okay. Now the tenant farmers, they would have thought that the manager was acting with authority because that's what he's always done. The manager hasn't been publicly discharged. He's just had a conversation with the boss. He's acted quickly. He's called them in. He gets them to change the the lease agreements. Now some people think that what he's doing is he's cutting out his commission. But I don't think that is. Just think about it. That's an awful lot of a commission. In one case, it's 50% of the bill. Would you be happy with your manager skimming 50% off the top? No, and the commentators agree that this is probably not the case. It's kind of like, uh, yes, he did get a commission, but it wasn't part of the bill. If you've ever been to the States where you have a tipping culture, you know when you get your bill for having dinner, uh, what you don't realise is the amount on the bill has nothing to do with what you pay uh, because it's the amount plus tax plus tip. Um, the, The manager's commission would have been on the edge. It wouldn't have been on the original bill. So what he's doing is he's actually taking $150,000 out of his master's bank account. How are you feeling about this? (laughs) Okay, well, let's have a look and see how the master's feeling. It's there in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, Can I just say, the NIV, the translation of the Bible that we're using here, I don't think does this justice, okay? Because the word that we would translate commend is actually a word that means to express admiration, to approve, not just of what someone does, but of them personally. So the master is saying, you're fantastic, Okay, and why? Well, the NIV says because he'd acted shrewdly. But the actual word is not shrewd. See, shrewd is something that can be positive or negative. Shrewd could be clever, but shrewd could also be cunning. And cunning is not positive in the English, is it? Okay, But the word in the Greek, the original language that this was written in, is not ambiguous. It is 100% positive. 
The master is approving or expressing admiration for this man because he had acted with wisdom, with insight, with understanding. It's amazing. One of the English translations, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, gets it, I think, better. The master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted astutely. There is nothing negative. There is no, oh, you've got me. You know, I can't, I can't reverse your decisions because that would make me look bad. So very cunning, very clever, okay? It's not there. There's no kind of ambiguity here. The master is universally positive about what the steward has done. Do we see that? The rich man is praising a man who has given away astounding amounts of his money. Why? Why? Now, I would like to suggest that the reason why is that the steward has acted in line with the master's character. The steward has acted in line with what the rich man is on about. Okay, why do I say that? Well, we've seen a glimpse of it. This is a man who's accused of wasting his master's money. Okay, of using it in a way that is not consistent with his master's end. And the Jewish law at the time meant that the steward would have been liable for that cost. Okay, so the master would have been in the opening verses of this parable totally within his rights to throw the full force of the law against this steward. And the steward would have known that. But he gets a telling off and he's told he's losing his job. But that's all. He's done something that actually gets him the title unrighteous, dishonest. But the master doesn't prosecute him. Why? Because the master is gracious and forgiving. And I think the manager, he sees a glimpse of this and he gambles on it, which brings us to our second point, a confronting conclusion. Let's read. This is how Jesus sums up on this. He says, The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, again, one of the more opaque conclusions to a parable. Yes, you're sitting there going, what does that mean? Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. What is Jesus commending? Now, what Jesus is not commending is the dishonesty or the unrighteousness that got the manager into trouble in the first place. That's why I think he's called an unrighteous manager because he was a manager that was worth being sacked. But Jesus is commending what he then did. He is commending the extravagant generosity that this man shows with his master's money. To ensure his future, he has given away Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of the master's money. He has gained the master reputation. But he's also gained the praise of the master. To 
borrow a phrase from another one of Jesus' parables, you could imagine the master actually saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The master and Jesus is praising this radical generosity. Now you might think, well, no one would, no one would do that. No one would do that. No one would praise someone for giving away $150,000 of their wealth. No one is that generous. Well, remember our context. Luke 15 and the three lost parables. And what did we see of the father in that third story? We saw him being a phenomenally gracious, giving, generous man. A way he would act in a way that would be inconsistent with any of the people in that culture. It was meant to be jarring and I think in the same way the manager's appraisal of his steward is meant to shock us. Jesus tells us the people of the world, they use worldly wealth to try and guarantee their futures. They have a vision of where blessing is found and they plan on how to get that. They have their investment portfolios and they have their plans and they have worked things through. They balance their options. They work out what's important. They work out how this world works and they act in line with it. They pursue their best interests. And Jesus says, well, disciples, that's us, if our faith is in Christ, we don't always get this right. We don't always do this as well as they do it. We should look to see where blessing is found. We should look to see how the world works. We should look to see what is truly important and what will last. We should invest here and now in a way that it bears fruit, not just for this life, but for eternity. Jesus tells us, to win friends, to use our wealth, our resources to influence others, but not just friends that hang out with you on Saturday night, but friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Friends that will be there in heaven when you come home. A commentator by the name of Norval Geldenhus, I've probably mispronounced that, he said this. He said, do we use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive it, receive us? So you think about it. What Jesus is using, he's using the imagery of this parable to talk about who can we influence, who can we serve in God's name, who can we be generous to, that he might use that to bring them home so they will be there to welcome us. So to go back to the previous parable, let me reframe chapter 15, particularly the older brother that we looked at last week, in terms of this parable. I think Jesus is saying, older brother, you should have gone out and spent the father's money shamelessly to win your younger brother back. 
You should have poured out your father's resources so that you might reconcile, see him reconcile back into the family. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. The parable is teaching us that to hold God's resources and to not use them the way he wants us to is to be dishonest and to face judgment as the steward did. To use those resources for the master's purposes, to seek the lost, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, to bless the poor, is to receive his praise. I saw a movie a while ago. It's a movie that I don't enjoy watching because it's not a fun movie. But many of us have probably seen it. Has anyone seen Schindler's List? You remember the end? If you haven't seen it, it's worth having a look at the end. Schindler was a German industrialist who basically bribed the Nazis to save more than 1,100 Jews from execution during the Second World War. And there is this scene, and I watched it on YouTube yesterday, and I'm not a kind of cry at movies kind of guy, uh, but I was getting close just watching three minutes of this movie. You have Oscar Schindler. He's there played by Liam Neeson. And he's got the crowd of people that he has saved by the use of his wealth. And they are thanking him and they've given him a ring in commemoration of what he's done as a thank you, a simple gesture. And then he realises he's going to drive off in, I think it's a Rolls Royce. And he has a gold pin attached to his lapel. And he says, I I could have sold the car. He would have bought the car and I could have got maybe five, maybe ten more people. He would have taken the pin, maybe that's one, maybe that's two. And he actually started to see, in light of the end, what his actions at that time could have meant. Because he was at the end. And he looked back. He'd done something wonderful. But he looked back with regret and he's there weeping. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to guilt you out. I don't think in eternity we're going to look back with grief. But we know what the end game is. We know what awaits us. We know that our heavenly father wants the lost found. He wants to bless his people and his creation extravagantly. And he's put those resources that we enjoy at our disposal. But they are still his. How do we use them? Because we manage the father's wealth On his behalf. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you want to future proof your life. If you want to be welcomed into eternity. Imagine it. Maybe you've been supporting CMS. And when you get into eternity. There you have people who have been reached by the work of women. Micah Prince. In Cambodia who are only there because people like us support them, pray for them. And they are there going, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much that you were faithful. How will that feel? Or maybe you're supporting 
AFES and the ministries on the university campus. You're giving to, to Lauren or to others. And there's all these university students. There's people, because from the world come our students. There's people of every nation, tribe and tongues because they're there in our universities. And they're saying, thank you. Thank you for using your worldly wealth to support someone who told me about Jesus. And then I went back to where I came from and I told others about Jesus. And you see the cascade. You see the picture here. The guy in the front, and Ben Kingsley, no, I've forgotten his name. What is his name? The actor at the front. No, that's Liam Neeson here, but the other guy. Ben Kingsley. He actually says at this point, he says, there will be generations. Generations now because of what you've done. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, we have the capacity to win friends. That there will be generations That cascading effect as we tell others who tell others who tell others. As the blessings of God cascade down. What is Jesus saying is the most intelligent way to future-proof your life? It's not the next holiday, but then holidays aren't bad. But in the light of eternity, it's not the bigger house. Houses are great, but in the light of eternity. Jesus doesn't want us living on the street But neither does he want us to use the master's wealth in a way that he will say, you dishonest manager. Let me just quickly unpack two of our key resources. Jesus has got one of them on view here. Money. It's the obvious one, isn't it? How do we use it? Jesus is telling us, that we should be using the worldly wealth that we have to see the poor reap, uh, the, the, the lost reached. We as a church, we partner with organisations that are frontline evangelistic organisations to reach into the university community, AFES, I've told you, if you want to know more, talk to Lauren. CMS that take the gospel to Australia and beyond. City workers there to reach our city for Christ. The ministry of our church. There are people here who have come to faith through the ministry of Trinity Church Brighton. We are here to reach the lost. That is what we are doing. Our mission statement says we are here to make and grow disciples of Jesus. We make them by seeking them and finding them in God's strength. But it's not just evangelism. Later on, we'll see this great story of Lazarus and the rich man. And it's clear that God wants us to be generous with his resources to bless those less fortunate than we are, to bless the poor. So what are we doing there? But I'd like to think money's the obvious one, but I don't think it's our key resource. Can I tell you something? And, and don't take this the wrong way. As a pastor, I find it easier to get money out of people than time. I think time has become our key resource. We are busy. We run around like mad things and to sometimes, I think, make ourselves feel a little better, we'll chuck money at something. I'll pay someone to do that. Okay, I'll support that. And that's great, can I say? It's really good that you use your money well. 
But time, I think, in our world is even more, more valuable. We can be using our time focused on earthly things, focused on our career advancement, focused on making our life comfortable, focused on planning the next holiday, planning the next thing, whatever it is that we do. How do we use our time? I, um, I love playing computer games. <laughs> I find them addictive. And I know that. And I know at the end of the day, Jesus is not going to say, well done, you got to level 46 of that. He is so not going to say that. Every single time I get off the computer having played a game, I go, well, that wasn't exactly time well used. Can I say, you can play computer games. It's okay to have leisure. It's okay to watch TV. But sometimes we can spend entire days binge-watching Netflix. We can spend hours upon hours upon hours playing computer games. But then, when the chance comes to step up in service of others, whether in church, whether in the home, whether in university, whether in community, oh, no, I don't have any time. Really? When it comes to sitting down and spending time getting to know your master's heart better, do we spend more time focusing on how to get to the next level than getting to know our master and his heart? How do we use our time? Let me just wrap up. Who does this? Who would be that generous? Well, Jesus tells us, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the others or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus here brings us to the heart of the matter, which tells us it's a matter of who you serve. It's a matter of where your heart is. If you are serving money, you will spend money to pursue your ends. And at the end of the day, the master will say, you have used my wealth dishonestly. Or you can use your money that God has entrusted to you, your time that God has entrusted to you, the resources that God has entrusted to you to achieve his ends. Why? Because you love him above all others. Because you are devoted to him. And you want nothing more than his glory. It's all a matter of who you serve. And Jesus says, the path to future-proofing your life is to be extravagantly generous with what it is that the Father has entrusted to you. So why would you do this? Ultimately, because he's done it for you. He's done it for you. The Lord Jesus came and he paid so that we might be welcomed into eternal dwellings, not with money, not with time, but with blood and pain. Jesus served us. He lavished his grace upon us and he has blessed us so that we might be faithful 
in blessing others. But do you know the amazing thing? That this isn't the end of this parable. There's this other little bit. Because Jesus here, he says, the one who's faithful with a little will be faithful with a lot. The one who is trustworthy with someone else's property will receive property of their own. These are images of eternal reward. And you know, the amazing thing about, amazing thing about God is that the, the best is yet to come. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, but the best is yet to come. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, way back, I think, in the 1800s, he said, our title to heaven is all of grace. Christ has done it. But our degree of glory will be proportioned to our works. As I read this parable this week, it echoed for me with another parable. The one who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with much. Luke 19, the parable of the minas. The master's gone away. He's left his servants with a job to do. The first one comes in and says, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy with a very small matter. Because you have been faithful with the worldly wealth that I have entrusted to you. Take charge of ten cities. Jesus isn't, I think, trying to motivate us by self-interest. He's trying to astound us by grace. So brothers and sisters, will we? Will we use the resources that our Lord has entrusted to our care, our management? Will we use it in a way that shows his extravagant grace as we seek the lost, as we bless the poor, as we serve the Lord? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing parable. The image you give us of the rich man of incredible wealth is just a glimpse of the riches that you have. And his grace is just a taste of the grace that you long to pour out, that you have given us in Christ, but promise us so much more. Father, we ask that we would be faithful. We would be faithful with the little. It seems like a lot to us, but in your eyes, it is a little. And we would trust that you have our best hearts and your best interests at the forefront of your plans. And as your glory is seen, as the lost are found, as the poor are raised up, so we are blessed. Father, we pray that we would be faithful stewards of what it is that you have given us. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.